Dear Lord, I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us here right now. Lord, I ask for your help as we give this presentation. Um, please let it go smoothly and, and let it be to your glory. Please help me to speak your words and not my own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is part two of the presentation we made this morning. Um, just as easily could be called Coexist or Evolve. And this morning we saw that um, at the root of the emergent church is evolution. And it's ult the ultimate ecumenical movement. I have this quote from Solomon, the wisest man. He said this, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. One of the things I would say is, as I've researched this and studied this out, I've realized that Solomon is right. There is nothing new under the sun. I remember the first time I, I read that, I thought, boy, that can't possibly be true. I mean, look at all the wonderful things we have with technology and things like that. But um, Solomon is absolutely right. Nope. Go ahead. And in the morning presentation, we talked about Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, and I have part of it here. Um, in the book of Revelation, we see this. It says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devil working miracles. And we saw that these are a kind of a counterfeit uh, three angels' message. Um, go ahead. I'd like to remind you of some of the things that we covered. Just read a little bit about what we saw as far as those three frogs are. This is uh, Ken Wilber, uh, a, a, uh, a Buddhist, and so therefore he would be the dragon. And he says this, Are the mystics and the sages insane because they all tell variations on the same story, don't they? Interesting observation he makes because all he really needed to do was read Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. They're all telling the same story. Maybe, just maybe, an individual's consciousness does indeed touch infinity. A total embrace of the entire cosmos. A cosmic consciousness that is spirit awakened to its own true nature. It's at least plausible. And then here we had Teilhard de Chardin, who's saying exactly the same thing. This cosmic body of Christ extends throughout the universe and comprises all things that attain their fulfillment in Christ, so that the body of Christ is the one single thing that is being made in creation. And here we have uh, Brian McLaren. And I want you to pay special attention to this because what he says here, you're going to hear stuff similar again. I felt that every tree, every blade of grass, and every pool of water become especially eloquent with God's grandeur. Somehow they seemed to become transparent or perhaps translucent is the better word, because each thing in its particularity was still utterly visible and unspeakably important. These specific concrete things became translucent in the sense that a powerful, indescribable, invisible light seemed to shine through. It was the exuberant joy of simply seeing these masterpieces of God's creation and knowing myself to be among them. It was to be one of them and to feel and know that we, all of these creatures, molecules, and phenomena were together known and loved by God who embraced us all in the ultimate capital W, we. And so you see Ken Wilber, the pantheist. You see 
Too hard to Chardin? Pantheism. Same thing as Wilbur said. And then here you see um, McLaren, another pantheist. And then we went through this. This is the great chain of being. This is an old pagan doctrine um, from the medieval time. You see Baphomet at the base of this, and then moving up all the different levels of matter and life to the angels and ultimately to God. And the emergence believe that this principle is what's working its way out in the, in the cosmos. It starts with Big Bang, then it goes to the origin of life, then it goes to higher life forms, then it goes to primitive man, and on to spiritual man, and ultimately to God. Divine consciousness emerging. If you're a fan of Teilhard, that would be the, the cosmic Christ. If you're a fan of the pagans, it would be, what was that? Divine consciousness emerging, something like that. Anyway, it's all the same thing. And then we saw how this coming together was all through mysticism. And we're going to talk more about mysticism as we go um, this afternoon. But ultimately, every religion has some form of a mystical inner and they believe that that leads you all the way to the same truth. And so what we're talking about today is really the ultimate ecumenical movement. Uh, Ellen White says this, We have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget the way has, the Lord has led us and is teaching in our past history. You're thinking, what does this have to do with our past history? Well, if you know Adventist history, you'll realize it actually has a lot to do with our past history. And so we're going to go over some of that right now. John Harvey Kellogg in the Alpha of Apostasy. You know, Kellogg is quite the character, and I love going on the Internet because you can find all kinds of interesting pictures of him. You know, he liked to ride bicycles a lot, and he would ride, and he would have his secretary follow along so that he could dictate while he's out riding his bike. The other thing you'll notice is he's often wearing white. And the reason why he liked to wear white was because he believed the sunlight could make it through his clothing and that that was a healthier way to live. Ellen White said, Be not deceived. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. You know, when I think about that seducing spirits, I think of those three frogs because what do they do? They go out to seduce the nations and to deceive them. She says, Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. The omega will be of a most startling nature. And you know, Dr. Kellogg and the apostasy that he brought into the church is the alpha that she's referring to here. And it's instructive for us to learn a little bit about it so that the omega is something that we can recognize. So John Harvey Kellogg is a young man. He was dedicated to the Lord. An interesting story about that. Um, he was out with his friends, and one of his friends had a compound fracture, I believe, of his leg, and it's a big bloody mess, and the doctor is called, and he watches the doctor set the bone, and it's just ugly, right? And he goes home, and he tells his mother all about it, and he says, Mama, I will never be a doctor. And so she took him aside right then, and she said, You know what? I want to dedicate you to the Lord. And they knelt down, and they prayed together, and from that moment on, John Harvey Kellogg felt that his entire life was dedicated to the Lord. In 1855, James and Ellen White relocate to Battle Creek, and James starts the steam press. This is the first time Adventism is kind of like settled down, because before this, it was always itinerant preaching going on. But James and Ellen White come to Battle Creek, and they start the press. 
1856, the Kelloggs moved to Battle Creek, and they start a broom factory. I used to remember, was it 15 of them or something like that? Well, anyway, I have this picture, and luckily, don't sit too close to the screen. You can't recognize the faces there because that's not the Kelloggs, but I wanted to show about what kind of size family we're talking about here, and that's not their broom factory, but it is a broom factory. And you can imagine the Kelloggs moving to Battle Creek and starting a broom factory back in the 1850s. 1864, John Harvey Kellogg is starting to grow up, and he gets his first job, at least his first job outside of the home, working at the steam press. And the thing about John Harvey Kellogg is that this guy was a voracious reader. He liked to read everything, and he was known for reading everything that the press printed. 1866, two years later, the Whites start the Western Health Reform Institute. They start this because James has been suffering from a lot of maladies, and, you know, he's not getting very good health care. And Ellen White is starting to realize that, uh, that the church can do better. And so they start this in 1866. Moving on with our story, 1869. Kellogg attends normal school. Another one of those tough words, but that's what they called him back then, normal school. He was going to be a teacher. This is not a place for doctors to go. This is a place for teachers to go. It's very interesting, though. You start to see a little bit about him. Um, at this time, he was inspired by the works of feminist social reformer Margaret Fuller. Now, Margaret Fuller, I never paid a lot of attention to, but his biographer, um, in his most recent biography, paid a little bit of attention to it um, and the fact that, that Kellogg was inspired by her. Um, she's a very interesting person. And it'll tell us a little bit about the times Kellogg was living in. Margaret Fuller was born in 1810, and by 1850 she, was, she, she died. She died in a shipwreck, very young, only 40 years old. She was a transcendentalist, a Unitarian, and she admired the work of Swedenborg. Now, we mentioned Swedenborg in the beginning. He's a spiritualist. Here is um, a, a description of her. She was a religious radical an avant-garde cultural critic, a feminist, a progressive social theorist, and a public intellectual. You know, when I read that description of her and what she was, it reminded me a little bit of some of these descriptions of the emergence. Now, as I was, um, I think I have one more slide on her. Let me see. Yes, I may have two more, actually. Um, Fuller is an early feminist. She's the one who first, she writes the first feminist uh, major piece of, of, of work, a first feminist book. And one of the things that's interesting about her, especially given the times that we live in today, is Fuller questioned a definitive line between male and female. She said there is no wholly masculine man, no purely feminine, but both are present in any individual. Yeah, it's interesting that she would say this back in the day because today we're living at a time when there's nothing, I mean, if there's anything going on today in America right now, it's the blurring of gender lines. Everything is a gender bender. And Margaret Fuller was one of the, uh, one of the early persons to propose this. Let me see if I have one more of her. In a letter to a friend, she wrote this. Oh, yeah, this is, very, this is another very interesting thing about her. We're going to see a little bit about her spirituality. She says this, I saw that there was no self, but that selfishness was all folly in the role of circumstance, that I had only to live in the capital A, all, 
Oh my, we've got the capital W, we, right, from McLaren. Now we've got a capital A, all, and all was mine. This truth came to me, and I received it unhesitatingly so that I was for that hour taken up into God. Interesting things going on here. Let's see if we've got one more. More than anything, Fuller was guided by mystical visions that came to her at pivotal moments in her life. I was, not only, I was not without hours of deep spiritual insight and consciousness of the inheritance of vast power, she wrote. I touched the secret of the universe, and by that touch was invested with talismanic power that has never left me. So here you see early feminist of the day. Now, there was something interesting as I was preparing for this lecture. One of the things I like to do um, is I do a lot of research, and when I don't have time to the library doing that kind of research, I find that YouTube is, a, is actually an amazing thing. And I was listening to a lecture by a professor from NYU on Margaret Fuller, and he said something that really caught my attention. Um, and I want to go back and see if I can find this in her writings. But this is what he said. He said, Margaret Fuller believed that man, in order to progress along the great chain of being and to move further up toward divinity, that we had to get feminist right. Remember, she's a feminist activist. And I just went, whoa, hold on, wait a second. Did he say great chain of being? And I went back and listened. And yes, he did. And so one thing that I know is that Margaret Fuller was also someone who subscribed to this philosophy and religious belief regarding the great chain of being. In 1872 to 1875, Kellogg leaves normal school. He goes to medical school. So what's the story behind that? Well, Kellogg's brother was working back at the Western Health Reform Institute, and James and Ellen recognized in Kellogg that he was a really smart guy and they realized they needed somebody good and smart, and so they thought, you know what, we'll send him off to medical school. And so that's exactly what they did. 1872 to 1875, Kellogg attends medical school. And during that same time period, Kellogg courts Mary Kelsey, and they seem to be truly in love. But all was not quite as it might seem, because in 1876, Mary Kelsey and Willie White were married. Oops. 1876, though, Kellogg is made superintendent of the Western Health Reform Institute, and the first thing he does is he renames it Battle Creek Sanitarium, and he institutes a policy of being non-denominational. Now, this, this issue of non-denominationalism is kind of interesting. Um, Ellen White also said that the institute should be non-denominational, but the two of them completely disagreed on what the term non-denominational should mean. Ellen White meant that both Adventists and non-Adventists should be able to come as patients and that this was a place where we could share the gospel. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg meant that this was a place that would not present the beliefs of any one denomination. And so he adopted the term non-denominational much like we would today. And that would be a fight that would be an underlying subtext um, during the entire time at Battle Creek. Battle Creek Sanitarium went on to be a great big place, and part of this story will be talking about how it grew big. Um, you can see here, this is from their letterhead. Uh, and then here, I decided, well, I could give you a long list of the famous people 
that were there. But if you look at this, I thought maybe I'd just try and see how well you guys can recognize your famous people. Um, who's that over there on the far left? John D. Rockefeller. And the next guy? Henry Ford. And then uh, the next guy there? President Taft. And the last one? Uh, not quite so famous. He is not, well, in some people, he's widely considered our worst president. That would be President Harding. Now, you should know President Harding for another reason, if you're up on your Seventh-day Adventist history. Do you know who President Harding was married to? I don't know her name, actually, but she was a Seventh-day Adventist. So anyway, but there are many, many famous people came to the sanitarium. 1876, this is the year that, uh, that John Harvey Kellogg took over. Um, he wrote this letter to Ellen White. He says this, I know I have not that communion with Christ and the fullness of the divine spirit and influence that an active Christian ought to have. I know nothing of the emotional part of religion. I have theoretical faith, but I'm of such a doubting, suspicious nature that I cannot make a practical application of it. John Harvey Kellogg would go on during his entire career, and he would, he would um, exchange private correspondence with Ellen White, and he would, he would share the truth about what he was feeling. And Ellen White worked very long and hard with him to help him with his spirituality. And there's a, there's a lot of these things that went on. 1879, Kellogg marries Ella Eaton. It was interesting because when they had the wedding... You mentioned a lady before whom Kellogg loved. Yes, that was Mary Kelsey. Why didn't he marry her? Because Mary Kelsey married Willie White. So there's a problem here. I'm just pointing out the tensions that must have been going on back in the place. Um, in 1879, Kellogg marries Ella Eaton. Now, what's interesting about this is the wedding invitations went out, and people were asking, well, I wonder who he's going to marry. They didn't know about this, uh, about this romance. Now, Ella Eaton is interesting because Ella Eaton is not a Seventh-day Adventist. Ella Eaton was a Seventh-day Baptist. And she went to non-Adventist schools, and she was influenced by some of the more influential thinkers of the time. Um, the uh, professors and, and deans of the school would come and were friends of the family. And they also shared some of these pantheistic beliefs. But Kellogg and, and Ella would have no children of their own, but they did things with gusto, and they adopted 42 children. So a little bit about Battle Creek. This is, this is very, very interesting. Um, there was the independent congregation of Battle Creek, a church in Battle Creek, and, and look at who worshipped together. Hicksite Quakers, Universalists, Swedenborgians, Progressionists, and Spiritualists. They all came together and worshipped together. Well, that should tell you a little bit about these different, these different groups because it means that their faith was compatible. And we've seen some of these, and we'll see more of them as we go. So what are the Hicksite Quakers? Um, the Hicksite Quakers, uh, well, first of all, you've got to know who the Quakers are. Um, they're founded by George Fox. Um, and what did they believe? The Hicksite Quakers are the group of the Quakers that did, more than anything else, they wanted to stick to what George Fox was really teaching. So this is kind of like the fundamentalist Quakers. And George Fox basically said that um, <clears throat> we all had a divine... Um, sense within, a God within. And so while we might, we might get our, our, our inspiration from the Bible or some other stuff, we weren't listened to anyone, whether it be the Bible or another person, for our personal beliefs. Your personal belief was supposed to be something that you experienced 
yourself. You know, this caused a problem for the Quakers. If you understand the history of the United States, we didn't always have as much religious freedom as we have today. And the Quakers were severely persecuted. And the reason why they were persecuted is because they weren't considered Christian. In fact, most of them would not even tell you that they were Christian. They didn't consider themselves Christian. As time went by to avoid persecution, a lot of them did say that they were Christian. And so today they may tell you that they're Christian, but this is their, this is their heritage and their background. So this is the pastor of the Independent Congregation of Battle Creek, Michigan. Very interesting guy. I don't know how important he is in Kellogg's life, but I think he's very important to understand spiritualism of the time and will give you a, a, a feeling, a feeling for that. He's a physician, an author, and a health reformer, a universalist, a spiritualist, and a theosophist minister, president of the National Spiritualist Association. This is a big dude in the movement. He actually came out to California and founded some schools. But he's the pastor of the independent congregation, Battle Creek, Michigan. These are some of the things he said. He said, I've seen tables, books, and other materials move without physical contact. Also, tambourines, violins, and guitars sail rapidly round a room by some unseen power, discoursing all the time delightful melodies. I've heard the voice of my Indian friend, Pahouten, and other spirit voices as distinctly as I've heard the human. Pahouten was dead at this point. Have seen the spirit form, grasped the spirit hand, felt the gentle spirit touch, and feasted upon the most enchanting spirit music when there was no individual in the earth form near me. So this is really classic spiritualism, is it not? I mean, this is what we think. If someone says, you're a spiritualist, and it's interesting, this is also the stuff that makes it into Disney films. This is what he says, repudiating the pantheistic theory of God as a cold, vitalized force or unconscious principle. And mind you, there's a classic form of pantheism, which is really related to Hindu pantheism, that says God is the universe, the universe is God. And that's, that's what he's talking about here, because there's no feeling in that. And the equally absurd notion that God is a personal being standing outside the universe, much as a child rolls the hoop, spiritualism endorses the idea that the infinite is a father, our father, living through all grades of existence. So you can see he still has the pantheist there, because the Father is living through all grades of existence. He goes on to say, Man is the highest earth manifestation of the Father. Imputed righteousness, atonements, and special schemes of salvation are but priestly doges or lies to sustain the lie or craft that secures the salary. He says, Spiritualism seeks to demolish sectarian barriers. And that's what we've been learning. He says, Honor thy inner Christhood. Live the divine life. It sounds very much to what we hear today in the new age, right? So just so you know, pantheism, I want to explain that. Pantheism is the belief that the universe is identical with divinity or that everything composes an all-encompassing, eminent God. Pantheists thus don't believe in a distinct personal anthropomorphic God. We've seen that. But when people talk about Kellogg and what was going on with the spiritualism in the day, they talk about the term panentheism. Remember Hegel, take two ideas, put them together and get a third idea? Well, that's essentially what panentheism is. It's take pantheism, add together elements of monotheism, and you end up with panentheism. It was a term coined in 1828, and it wasn't popularized till the 20th century. So when people talk about this stuff, don't be confused because something's panentheism, pantheism, or whatever. These, these, these terms are relatively 
modern. I just put this up here so you understand what people are talking about if you hear them arguing about pantheism and panentheism. But if all of this confuses you, it's okay. Let me give you a way to think about it. You know, a Ford automobile, it's a car, right? And a Ford is a Ford, but it's still a car. Panentheism is just the Ford of cars. It's the Ford of pantheism. Panentheism, pantheism, it's all the same thing. Yes? You said this congregation was in Battle Creek. How close to our tabernacle and membership-wise, was it a large one? How much influence it exerted or just five to ten people? Well, the question is, how big was it? Where was it located next to our, 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 our business and how influential was it? Well, I don't know where it was located. I know that it was fairly large um, as local churches go. But you have to understand, Battle Creek at this point was a very small community, like maybe 1,000, 2,000 people there. So anybody in town is going to be noticed. And, and we'll see a little bit more about that, I promise. Um, so anyway, let's, let's keep moving through. So we're moving along, General Conference 1888. I think it's really important to point this out. This is something that Ellen White had to say. After the meeting at Minneapolis, the famous 1888 General Conference, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. So all that work that Ellen White did paid off. But by 1897 things were starting to go a different direction. And Kellogg had this to say at General Conference. He said, The same divinity that was in Christ is in us and is seeking to lead us to the same perfection which we see in Christ, to the attainment of which there can be no hindrance except our individual wills. Now, that may not seem too far out there. In fact, I'm not even sure that it is out there. It may be just fine. But he's moving in a direction that he's going to continue to go where he's talking about divinity in us us. And then he says this, which is really kind of interesting. This is called the biologic gospel. He says, those who meet the Lord when he comes will be above the power of disease as well as above the power of sin. They will reach this condition by obedience to truth. Now, you think about what's going on in the church right now. You've had um, Jones and Wagoner come along and they have preached victory over sin. And we believe in that, amen? We'll have victory over sin. But they took it a step too far. And both Jones and Wagner would get on this same wagon with, with, um, with John Harvey Kellogg. And they would preach this gospel here, the biologic gospel. And what they believed is, is that we would overcome disease and physical infirmities by living our life properly. And so, therefore, you have the health message. The health message ceased to be the right arm of the gospel, and it became the gospel. And we need, we need to be careful not to fall into that same trap today. This is what A.T. Jones had to say. Perfect holiness embraces the flesh as well as the spirit. It includes the body as well as the soul. Perfect holiness cannot be attained without health. Wagner said, he preached neither disease nor death would come to those who had achieved physical and moral holiness. So, we see these doctrines coming in, 
But then there's a guy, William Spicer. I really like Spicer and what he did. Spicer had this to say. Spicer, we need to introduce who he is. Spicer was our Adventist missionary to India. And that gave him very special knowledge and understanding of pantheism. Because truly, India is the home of pantheism with Hinduism here. And so he had a special, a special perspective as he, as he came home and saw what was going on with, with John Harvey Kellogg. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what he said about this, um, about this incident. He says this, When the peril arose, talking about um, John Harvey Kellogg, and was recognized as the very thing against which the warnings had been uttered, we realized that truly the word of the Lord had been fulfilled again as of old. Before it came to pass, I showed it to thee. And he's talking about how the spirit of prophecy led us through these events. And Ellen White had this to say in 1899. Now think about what's going on here. She said this, Christ came to the world as a personal Savior. He represented a personal God. He ascended on high as a personal Savior, and he will come again as he ascended to heaven, a personal Savior. We need carefully to consider this, for in their human wisdom, the wise men of the world, knowing not God, foolishly deify nature and the laws of nature. Notice how many times she used the word personal there? That's the emphasis. She's opposed to this pantheism. She says this, idolatry of nature is a farce. It's the invention of men who know not God and who are trying to keep out of sight a knowledge of the true God. God has laws which he has instituted, but they are only his servants through which he affects results. Ellen, I mean, uh, John Harvey Kellogg, uh, addressing the General Conference, said this, take the sunflower, for example. It looks straight at the sun. It watches and follows the sun all day long, looking straight at it all the time. And as the sun dips down below the horizon, you see that sunflower still looking at it. And as the sun turns around and comes up in the morning, the flower is looking toward the sun rising. It is God in the sunflower that makes it do this. So you can see, John Harvey Kellogg was not following or listening to Spirit of Prophecy at this point. And you can see there's a real tension going on between him and Ellen White. He also had this to say, the whole sanctuary question is the question of our bodies and of ourselves personally and not a question of architecture. You know, today we, we hear that there's conflicts going on in the church, people denying that there's a sanctuary in heaven. Well, this is all going back. We've seen this all before with John Harvey Kellogg. And so, Battle Creek Sanitarium, February 1902. God would not be mocked. And the sanitarium burned. Everyone got out. There was no lives lost until one individual, one of the patients there, realized he left his life savings inside of his room and he went back in to save it. And he never made it back out. But John Harvey Kellogg had plans to build. And as soon as he heard, he wasn't there when it burned down. He was on a train and he heard that it had burned. And he started immediately to make plans. And the plans he had was to write a book called The Living Temple, which he went ahead and, and, and wrote. And the idea was is he would write this book and that the call porters would take it out and sell it, and with the proceeds from the book sales, he would build the sanitarium. Well, Spicer had this to say about what was going on with this, uh, with this book and, and, and the writing of this book. He says this, There was something supernatural in the writing, working of this thing. I knew there was mystic hypnotic power in it. I knew by painful experience that I had to fight it, resist it in my soul, or I would be swept off my feet. 
And I never got free from the paralyzing fear of it and the challenge of it in face-to-face committee work. Yet some smiled at the idea of danger. I think that's instructive to us, you know. We see danger, we see danger in the emergent church, but yet we will find people inside of our church who will smile at our concerns. This is from the Living Temple. I want to give you a feel as to what Kellogg was saying in there. Now, I don't think it's good to study the Living Temple. I don't think it's good to study any of these works. But just to give you an idea so that we can be forewarned. It says this, Animal life and vegetable life are not merely kindred lives, but are really one and the same. Every leaf, every blade of grass, every flower, every bird, even every insect, as well as every beast or every tree, bears witness to the infinite versatility and inexhaustible resources of the one all-pervading, all-creating, all-sustaining, capital L, life. We got the pantheism again. God is the explanation of nature. Not a God outside of nature, but in nature. A tree maker in a tree, a flower maker in a flower. There's all around us an infinite, divine, though invisible, presence. Capital P, presence. So this God actually entered into the product of his creative skill, man. This is where we're getting the title of the book. So that it might not only outwardly reflect the divine conception, but that it might think divinely and act divinely. God not only forms a man from the dust of the ground, but continues to form him as long as he lives. And the moment the creative process ceases, the walls of the temple totter and fall, its timbers fall apart, and the whole edifice crumbles back to dust. Interesting. So Spicer was having conversations with Kellogg, and um, this is Spicer recounting the conversation. He went to have an interview with Kellogg, and he was asked, where is God? I was asked. I would naturally say he's in heaven. There the Bible pictures the throne of God, all the heavenly beings at his command as messengers between heaven and earth. But I was told that God was in the grass and in the plants and in the trees with motions to the grass and trees about us as we sat on the open veranda. Where's heaven, I was asked. I had my idea of the center of the universe with heaven and the throne of God in the midst, but disclaimed any attempt to fix the center of the universe astronomically. But I was urged to understand that heaven is where God is, and God is everywhere in the grass and in the trees and in all creation. There was no place in this scheme for things for angels going between heaven and earth, for heaven was here and everywhere, The cleansing of the sanctuary that we taught about was not something in faraway heaven. The sin is here, hand pointing to the heart, and here is the sanctuary to be cleansed. To think of God as having a form in the image of which man was made was said to be idolatry. You see how pantheism completely twists our faith? By any understanding I had of language, I was listening to the ideas of the pantheistic philosophy which I had met with in India. In fact, I was told that pure pantheism, as the early teachers conceived it, was indeed right. God was in the things of nature. With scripture terms and Christian ideas interwoven, it seemed the old doctrine of the Hindus, all nature a very part of Brahma, and Brahma the whole. Autumn Council, 1902, there was a committee report. A.T. Jones delivered this. And A.T. Jones says that, we find in the book Living Temple, Nothing which appears to us to be contrary to the Bible or the fundamental principles of the Christian religion, and that we see no reason why it may not be recommended by the committee for circulation in the manner suggested. Wow. Can you believe that? And I'm telling you, A.T. Jones was no slouch. He was a very intellectual man. I've read his works on religious liberty, and he's genius in that area. But God is not mocked. 
And so the Review and Herald burned December 1902. Um, the interesting thing about that is that the plates were ready for the printing of the book. The Review and Herald never got around to printing it. Ellen White had this to say. She said this, Spurious scientific theories are coming in as a thief in the night, stealing away the landmarks and undermining the pillars of our faith. God has shown me that the medical students are not to be educated in such theories because God will not endorse these theories. Do you realize those are fighting words? Because Kellogg is running a school, and he's running our only medical school, and she's saying, don't train them in this stuff. And this is the main thing Kellogg is talking about. So she's saying, don't send them there. The most suspicious temptations of the enemy are coming in, and they are coming in on the highest, most elevated plane. These spiritualize the doctrines of present truth until there is no distinction between the substance and the shadow. Well, a little bit of background. Um, this year, they actually moved the general conference from Battle Creek to the Washington, D.C. area. And things started to change. And, and you'll notice in some of, the, um, some of the materials that we have, um, you'll see icebergs. You'll see things called meet it. Where does that all come from? I want to share a specific vision that Ellen White had. She wrote it um, to the Autumn Council in Washington, D.C., and it's very interesting. I'll just read some parts of it. She says this, One night a scene was clearly presented before me. A vessel was upon the waters in, in a heavy fog. Suddenly the lookout cried, Iceberg just ahead. There, towering high above the ship, was a gigantic iceberg. An authoritative voice cried out, meet it. There was not a moment's hesitation. It was time for instant action. The engineer put on full steam, and the man at the wheel steered the ship straight into the iceberg. With a crash, she struck the ice. There was a fearful shock, and the iceberg broke into many pieces, falling with a noise like thunder to the deck. The passengers were violently shaken by the force of the collision, but no lives were lost. The vessels were injured. The vessel was injured, but not beyond repair. She rebounded from the contact, trembling from stem to stern like a living creature. Then she moved forward on her way. You know, this happened a few years before the Titanic. And we know from the Titanic that what they did was the wrong thing. Instead of ramming directly into the iceberg, they steered to the side. And in doing that, they had a glancing blow along the iceberg and it ripped them from stem to stern, and it was impossible for the Titanic to survive. Ellen White says this, Well, I knew the meaning of this representation. I had my orders. I heard the words, like a voice from our captain, Meet it. I knew what my duty was, and that there was not a moment to lose. The time for decided action to come. I must, without delay, obey the command, Meet it. And so the church would take a different approach to, uh, to John Harvey Kellogg. No more was there an attempt to reconcile uh, John Harvey Kellogg to the church. And the church would go on full force to, to, to go against his teaching. And she said this, Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories, and I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. Messages of every order and kind have been urged upon Seventh-day Adventists to take the place of the truth which, point by point, has been sought out by prayerful study and testified to by the miracle working of the power of the Lord. 
But the way marks which have made us what we are are to be preserved, and they will be preserved, as God has signified through his word and the testimony of his spirit. He calls upon us to hold firmly with the grip of faith to the fundamental principles that are based upon unquestionable authority. So what happened to the living temple? You know, we have, we have uh, copies of it around. I had a picture of it, right? Um, John Harvey Kellogg had it published, but he couldn't get it sold in America. And so what he did is he, he sold it to a group. Um, I can't remember their name, but their, their official uh, magazine was something called the Herald of the Golden Age. And this was a Masonic uh, secret society, uh, spiritualistic society that existed in England at the time. And Spicer, on his way home, saw an advertisement for it. And the internet being what it is today, I can actually dig up it. And so you see it here. Let's see what it says. The Council of the Order is so impressed with the importance and value of this book and feels so strongly that the information contained in its pages would prove of the greatest value to our members, co-workers, and converts that a special arrangement has been made with the proprietors for it to be supplied direct to the English public from our publishing office. Wow, when you think about that, think about it for a second. This was a book to be sold by our call porters, and yet it gets adopted by these folks, and they have this to say about it. Next. So in 1907, Kellogg was disfellowshipped. He had this to say as he reminisced about his life. He said, I was trying to believe in God and nature. I had two gods, but I could not go on thus. I could not see how God could be above nature, so I had taken the position that God was not above nature. I believed that nature was almost equal with God. This here is Ernest Haeckel. He's one, uh, one scientist that uh, Kellogg would cite as one of his influences. Um, if you see right here, you see this, uh, this interesting chart. How many of you have seen that kind of chart today? Have seen it before? Yeah, exactly. That's supposedly showing a human embryo and how once we're conceived, we move through and relive all the phases of evolution until we become a human being. You know, these things are still in our textbooks today. But you know what happened to Heckel? I can't remember the name. I think it was University of Jena, but I'm not sure. He was one of the European universities. They took him to trial before he was dead. And they said, you know what? That's a fraud. And they, they, they convicted him of academic fraud. Yet we still have it in our textbooks today. This isn't true. You know, the only reason why he got away with it was because back in the day when you looked through a microscope, they hadn't figured out how to photograph things yet. But now today everyone can look through the microscope and we can photograph this and we know what it looks like and it's completely fraudulent. Another one of his influences that he cited was Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer's interesting. He developed a, a, an all-embracing concept of evolution. He was kind of like Darwin 2.0, and he coined the term survival of the fittest. Interesting. What he believed was that the physical world, biological organisms, the human mind, and human culture and societies were all governed by Darwinism. And you may have heard the term social Darwinism. Well, that comes from Herbert Spencer. He had just an interesting quote here. He says, so we arrive at the point where religion and science coalesce. These guys all knew, all back in the day, they knew Darwinism is a religion. Um, 
Kellogg often quoted him in his magazine, and he also embraced something called new theology or new thought. And if you know anything about that, that is all pervasive in America today. So, to recap, what have we seen with that little bit of history? Well, first of all, it was called the Alpha. Ellen White called it the Alpha and said the Omega would follow. We've seen spiritualism, mysticism, the Eastern religion, the pantheism, the panentheism, whatever you want to call it, personal divinity, the God within, the ecumenical there with that church in town. How ecumenical can you get? We've seen Quakers, reformers, universalists, atheists, and they go by the term science. That's the alpha. And if you were listening carefully, I think you saw that what Brian McLaren had to say and what the Living Temple had to say was pretty much the same thing. Ellen White had this to say, Rapidly are men ranging themselves under the banner they have chosen, restlessly waiting and watching the movements of their leaders. I'm running out of time, so I will just say this. Humanity is hailed as God. And that seems to be the world that we're finding ourselves in. Now, we talked about peoples, and we wanted to know the relationship that peoples may have. I don't know how good a friend peoples was with John Harvey Kellogg. But it's interesting because there was a banquet held in John Harvey Kellogg's honor, and peoples made a tribute to him. And he said at this meeting that he remembered back in 1856 meeting John Harvey Kellogg, the bright, sturdy, active, wide-awake boy playing in the streets. So by 1908, Peebles was giving a tribute to John Harvey Kellogg. Proverbs tells us this, There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Oh, we need to learn from this. You know, um, when we look at all of this stuff, it can be kind of depressing. And so I want to take a break here just to think about Something positive. Something positive. And I, I thought about the story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther's a really important guy to us. I don't need to explain all of that. But you know, the Protestant Reformation was in a lot of trouble. It didn't always go well. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to um, Psalms 46. Martin Luther read this during his time of distress. Psalms 46, I'm just going to start at the beginning. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. Now when we read... Psalms, we so often look at that word Selah and we go, what is that? What does that mean? Why do we even, I don't know how many times as a kid I just went right over it. I thought it was something we didn't understand. It was like a punctuation mark that meant nothing to me. But you know what it means? It means, think about this. It means, meditate on this. Now that's exactly what Martin Luther did. He read this and as he meditated on this and thought about it, it caused him to write a mighty fortress. And if you know anything about the history of the Reformation, you'll know that that song was an electrifying song. And it went out through the lands of the Reformation, and it inspired people. And that inspiration led to great victories within the Protestant movement. This is what meditation is actually supposed to be. 
the Selah. You read about it, you think about it, you do something. This is totally different than the kind of meditation that the emergents talk about. And so I'd like to switch and talk a little bit more now about what's going on with the emergent church here, today, in our day. And I'd like to point out this guy, Dwight Friesen. Now, before I say too much about him, let's, let's kind of, by way of remembrance, let's read a little bit that he has to say. And I, I point him out because he's such, I don't know that he's particularly important in the movement, but he's just, he's a good example of an emergent. He says this, is the need to be right is the great threat to conversation. Remember what we were talking about, that Hegelian thing going back and forth? The theological method of orthoparadoxy, there's a big word we don't understand, surrenders the right to be right for the sake of movement toward being reconciled one with the other while simultaneously seeking to bring fullness of convictions and beliefs to the other. Okay, let's go back and figure out what orthoparadoxy means. How many of you have ever been to an orthodontist? See a few hands here. What do they do? No, they don't pull teeth. Your dentist does. They straighten your teeth. And what are they doing? They're making your teeth correct. They're correcting your teeth. That's what ortho means, correct. And paradox, we know what paradox is. So an orthoparadoxy is a correct paradox. What he's saying is, is a correct Hegelian dialectic. He's saying we get the right setup. We get the right thesis and the right antithesis. We're going to get the right solution. So the theological method of orthoparadoxy, or the Hegelian dialectic, surrenders the right to be right for the sake of movement. So it doesn't matter whether you're right or not, you just want to move. We want to get to that synthesis toward being reconciled one with the other while simultaneously seeking to bring the fullness of convictions and beliefs to the other. Current theological methods that often stress agreement, disagreement, win, loss, good, bad, orthodoxy, heresy, and the like set people up for constant battles to convince and convert the other to their way of believing and being in the world. He doesn't like conversion. He doesn't like right. All he wants is to have the conversation. He says, the problem with orthodoxy or authoritarian dogmatic claims is that they are conversation stoppers. So what he's saying is the problem with the Bible and the thus saith the Lord is it's a conversation stopper. And it is. Is it not? So let's look at this guy. Who is he? He works at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Says this, he brings more than a dozen years of missional and pastoral experience to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. That should already tip you off. What's theology and psychology doing together? That's a weird combo, especially if you understand the history of psychology. He was the community curate of an Eastside emerging simple church for more than 11 years. He was ordained by the Christian Missionary Alliance until surrendering those credentials in solidarity with women seeking ordination. So the guy's a social justice warrior. You can see what's important to him. He's a liturgical Anabaptist with progressively evangelical and emergent sensibilities. Okay, that's interesting, Anabaptists. If you study out Anabaptists, and you know who they are in the big scheme of things, they're sort of cousins to Adventists. And if you went way back in time when the Anabaptists were ac active and, and you know, the time of Luther and Calvin and all this stuff, you would probably be most comfortable spending the weekend with an Anabaptist as opposed to a Lutheran or a Calvinist. He's a liturgical Anabaptist with progressively evangelical and emergent sensibilities, actively seeking to root his faith practice within place while linking globally with others who seek to live in their context. Okay, let's pull that apart. He's an evangelical emergent 
and he wants to root his faith practice in place while he links with other people, which I assume means other faith practices, seeking to live in their context. So he's not trying to convert anybody. He just wants to link with other people that are being spiritual. So you be a good Buddhist, you be a good Lutheran, you can be a good Seventh-day Adventist. He just wants to link with you. Dwight earned his doctorate of ministry at George Fox University. Okay, this is interesting because and relevant to us because George Fox University is now the favorite place for Adventists to go to get their, their demons if they're like in the chaplaincies, youth ministries, things like that. And we've sent quite a few to George Fox University. And who is George Fox? He's the founder of the Quakers, right? And what did he think? You have a divine God within, and you're not supposed to let anybody tell you what to do. So let's look. We'll, we'll quit reading that. Let's look at George Fox University. But before that, let's look at Romans. It says this, Romans 1, verses 20 to 22. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, in my Bible, I wrote something in the margin there. Everybody knows. That's what the Bible is telling us. Everybody knows. But because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were, thank, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I really believe that's what we're looking at today. So George Fox University. The degree that everybody's going to get there, that the Adventists are going to get, is a degree, um, for, it's the Doctorate of Ministry, Semiotics, and Future Studies taught by Dr. Leonard Sweet. And let's read about it. This is from their webpage. They've updated it since, but, but I took this a few years ago. Um, it hasn't changed much. It says this, The Leadership and Emerging Cultural doctor, Doctorate of Ministry tracks explore the character and shape of effective Christian leadership in an emerging culture. So it's very clearly emergent. The Semiotics and Future Studies Doctorate of Ministry program with Dr. Leonard Sweet. Now, already, I'm already losing you. What's semiotics? Okay, I didn't know either, but I'll explain it. Semiotics is like linguistics, okay? Linguistics is the study of language to see what language means. How does language function? Semiotics is the study of culture or events in society to see what they mean. So a semiotician would be excited about 9-11 because that's a big event. That means something. But they also might be interested in cell phones because they become smartphones, and that means something. And so they look at all these different things to see what they mean. So instead of looking at language, they're looking at events and things like that. So Dr. Sweet is preparing an advanced guard of Jesus semioticians Leaders adept at seeing signs of Jesus' work in the world. These followers of Jesus are not afraid of the future, but are excited about its possibilities and promises while aware of its perils and pitfalls. Now, stick with me. We're going to pull this one apart. This approach is an ancient future one of MRI, missional, relational, incarnational discipleship, using an epic, experiential, participatory, image-rich, connective interface. Students explore how to transition the church from its current default of APC, attractional, propositional, colonial, to MRI, and play with a variety of epic interfaces. Now, if you didn't understand that, trust me, I didn't either. I had to read it a bunch of times. But let's pull it apart. 
First of all, they talked about ancient future. This is big in the emergent church. And this is one of the things that makes the emergent church so dangerous because what's going on with this is they're putting this, this, this veneer of Christianity. But what Christianity are they putting on this? Well, you have to understand what they're talking about. They're talking about ancient mysticism and the desert fathers. And right here I have a, a map of the Roman world. Um, not really the Roman world, but the Roman trade routes to China. And basically, this is the Silk Road from 300 B.C. to A.D. 100. The, the, the trade routes to China were open, and you can see the Mediterranean over here on the far left, and it goes all the way over to China and back. The Desert Fathers, they all live around the Mediterranean where those trade routes come in. And they weren't trading only in silks and spices. They were also trading in religion. And it's there that you find the Desert Fathers that are into mysticism and meditation. And that's what goes on in this area. You know, the Bible had something to say about this time period that they're looking at when the Desert Fathers, the part of the ancient future that the emergent church is going after. And this is the church of Smyrna. The Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which is dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so this should give you a big warning. You can't look to the church of Smyrna and just take in whatever they have. Because they have the synagogue of Satan there. Jews that say they are, but are not. This is what the emergent church is bringing in. They're bringing in the mysticism of this period. And it's pure paganism. MRI, remember that was in there. Missional, relational, incarnational. Missional, remember it's, it's mission without the missionary. Go out and help someone, but don't lead them to Christ. Relational, that's all about conversation and friendship. And remember the dialectic, you've got to have that conversation going. They're big on relationships. And if there's anything our society has trouble with today, it's loneliness. And so this is a powerful tool of theirs. Incarnational. It took me a while to figure out what he meant by incarnational, and I finally figured it out. You know, Jesus incarnated into this world. He says, Leonard Sweet says, Jesus was incarnated into the culture of this world. Now, I don't understand Jesus' incarnation this way. He was incarnated into our flesh, but not our culture. And he goes on and he says, an emergent Christian must incarnate the gospel through joyful participation in the culture's glory, and honest engagement in its darkness. That's not the Jesus I know. That is dangerous stuff. They want to use this epic, experiential, participatory, image-rich, connective interface. What does that mean? That's pretty self-explanatory, and you could pretty much just say it's a group mystical experience. Lots of stuff happens in groups. And remember, they wanted to transition the church from APC. Well, what's APC? Attractional, propositional, colonial. Well, that attractional means they market themselves, but you could easily just say it's missionary. Any church that's missionary that has propositional truth or teaches doctrines. I mean, what do you do? You go and you, and, and you, you reach out to people and then you teach them the truth about Jesus, right? Colonial. They like, to, they like to, to put a bad cast over things because colonialism isn't popular today. But the idea being that you're being colonial when you baptize someone into your denomination. 
So with that understanding, let's read what this says. Students explore how to transition the church from its current default of APC to MRI and play with a variety of epic interfaces. So they're going to try to transition the church from its current default of APC. You know, that's classic Adventism. We do the Revelation Seminar, right? So they want to transition us from our classic Adventism to MRI, this missional, relational, incarnational thing, culture, and not sharing Jesus so much is just being good to, it, to people, using epic, this mysticism. They do it a whole bunch of different ways. And I have this diagram here. I wish, you could, I wish it was bigger, so I don't know if you can all see it. But the idea is, is that with the mysticism, there's all kinds of different practices that are used. There's such a variety, and I don't have time to explain the different varieties. Hopefully, you'll get some of that later in the week. But it doesn't really matter. There's so many different flavors of it. I like to think of it as 31 flavors ice cream. They all taste different, don't they? But you know what? They're all mainly sugar and cream, right? And they'll all give you a heart attack. And so here you've got meditation, Lectio Divina, journaling, contemplative arts. Then you, you see the, the working and volunteering, vigils and marches, labyrinth walking, yoga, um, prayer retreats, things like that. Um, spiritual formation plays a big role in all of this. And I think that it's, it's really important for us to, um, to understand spiritual formation a lot of times people will try to tell you, well, you know, everyone needs to form their spirituality. We're just interested in forming people's spirituality. Spiritual formation has a particular meaning. And people with PhDs in this know better. And don't let people take away the language from you. It has meaning. And so the heroes of spiritual formation, they're the likes of Ignatius Loyola, Thomas Merton, Richard Foster. Um, these are folks that I've seen in Adventism that, that Adventists have quoted and, and the likes like that. Um, the list is much longer. One thing that's nice about them is they're fairly intellectual and they like to cite people. That gives you the power to look and see who that name is and who they're actually referring to. Pope Francis's address to Congress in 2015 was really interesting and it's relevant to this whole conversation. And I'll tell you why. When he was talking, he talked about Thomas Merton. He says this, Merton was above all a man of prayer. Remember, he's a hero of spiritual formation. He was also a man of dialogue. Dialogue? A promoter of peace between peoples and religions. A nation can be considered great when it pursues social justice by her tireless work, the fruit of a faith which becomes dialogue and sows peace in the contemplative style of Thomas Merton. The Pope is inviting America to adopt the spirituality of Thomas Merton. Merton is a spiritual formation guy. He's someone that the emergents like. He's someone that's quoted all the time by the emergents. And so you'll see him quoted from time to time, even from Seventh-day Adventists. And this is what can draw us together in peace, according to the Pope. Ignatius of Loyola, he wrote a book about spiritual formation called The Spiritual Exercises. The spiritual exercises are a kind of guided meditation. This is, to me, the most classic form 
of spiritual formation and the kind of spirituality that we're talking about here. He, he had a very, very interesting conversion experience. You know, Ignatius of Loyola is a lot like um, um, Martin Luther. They both went through this time of intense spiritual just, uh, just turmoil and all this other kind of stuff. Um, Martin Luther, though, he turned to the Bible. And there he discovered that the righteous shall live by faith and grace. Ignatius of Loyola, he turned to meditation. And let's look at something about his meditation. This is from Wikipedia and his conversion story. He says this, These repetitive visions, this is what he had in his meditation, appeared as a form in the air near me, and this form gave him much consolation because it was exceedingly beautiful. It seemed somehow to have the shape of a serpent and had many things that shone like eyes but were not eyes. He received much delight and consolation from gazing upon this object, but when the object vanished, he became disconsolate. Wow. He's here with the serpent, and when he's with the serpent, he feels good. And when he's not, he's disconsolate. So today, you have these things called Ignatian retreats, and this is your classic prayer retreat. There's many variations on this, but let me explain it just a little bit. Um, I went to Georgetown University, and when I was there, they had these advertisements for these things. I saw them all over the place. Well, I never went. I thought maybe I should, but I didn't, praise the Lord. And um, now I know why. Um, but let's, let's pull one of these apart. It says this, The workshop will begin with an overview of the structure of the psyche according to Jung. And just, you know, these retreats usually lasted the whole weekend or a long weekend. Overview of the structure of the psyche according to Jung. There's your psychology again. The Jungian framework will then be applied to spiritual exercises. Some of the themes covered will be the archetypal imagery in Ignatius' account of his conversion experience at Loyola. So they're going to teach you about the serpent, Right? discernment of the spirits and the movement of the self toward wholeness. Now that's interesting because they're going to make contact with spirits and you need to be able to discern them. So even they know they're not always getting the right ones. The principle and foundation and the desires of the authentic self. Capital S though, it's a little bothersome. Connecting to the unconscious psychic energy and hearing the call of the king. The practice of Jungian active imagination and Ignatian contemplation. Now, you have to understand something about Carl Jung. Carl Jung's like number two after Freud. And Carl Jung had a familiar spirit. And he got his inspiration from a familiar spirit. So that's his imagination. The call of the king. You go to these places and you get this guided imagery. You have a spiritual director assigned to you. And he teaches you and he gives you these meditation tasks. Well, the call of the king, you're supposed to hopefully... Make contact with a king that will come to you and tell you what your mission in life is. That's what the attempt is at these Ignatian retreats. They're trying to make contact with the spirits. Contemplative prayer, centering prayer, Christian meditation. These things are all the same thing. It's the Eastern practices trying to help you make contact with the spirits. Lectio Divina, another similar practice. The labyrinth, some of us may have walked labyrinths. Um, in this case, it looks like a maze, but it all goes to one spot in the center. And in the center, you're to contemplate on different things depending upon where you are in that little, um, 
I don't know, it's like a clover leaf of some kind. They love music. Music is a big deal. The music, the rhythm, the lights. Why? Because all of this, all of it is designed for one thing. Turn off the frontal lobe. If you can shut down that frontal lobe, then the spirits can have access to you. If you have any question about music, you need to spend a whole week hearing a seminar on that. It's a huge subject. I can't talk more about it. Preaching. Sweet and McLaren, two of Adventist favorites, have this to say. Before asking yourself, before creating a sermon, what is my point? Ask yourself, what is my image? Or in more musical terms, what experience do I want to compose? Seize people by the imagination and transport them from their current world to another world where they gain a new perspective. Disorientation, astonishment, amazement. You beam them up into the spaceship of an unexpected experience. It's all about experience. It's not about preaching the word. And when I look at this, this, this disorientation, astonishment, and amazement, these are kinds of things that you do with hypnotism, actually. Ellen White had this to say, I've been shown that we must be guarded on every side and perseveringly resist the insinuations and devices of Satan. The sciences of phrenology, psychology, and mesmerism are the channel through which he comes more directly to this generation and works with that power which is the which is to characterize his efforts near the close of probation. Well, we certainly see the psychology through all of this. And the mesmerism, you know, sadly there are people that learn how to preach and hypnotize their audiences. And when I looked at phrenology, I don't know much about it, but I started to study into it a little bit. And the one thing that struck me about that is it really reminded me of personality tests. I swear all of this stuff here is with us here today. But remember, why do they do this? Soren Kierkegaard told us why to do this. Because the church is not trying to prove Christianity or even defend it. It's helping the single individual to make that blind leap of faith. All of this mysticism is to help you make that blind leap of faith so that you can have the mystical experience. So what's the solution? Well, you're going to hear from other people during the week, and they're going to tell you a lot about the solution. But I just want to end with just a, a couple of different texts. And I want to just point, you know, Paul was coming down to the end of his ministry, and he knew that we were going to have these kinds of troubles. And his advice then is just as good today. He said to Timothy, Study the word to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they increase unto more ungodliness. This is the exact opposite of higher criticism, is it not? He says this in chapter 3, Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affections, truce bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those who are good, traitors heady and high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. When you look at this and you try to pull this apart, you know, the emergent church claims a lot of power. But the Bible says they have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. You know what power they're denying? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And there's really only one power that they're denying. 
That's the power to overcome sin. It's the power for the Holy Spirit to give you victory over sin. There's so much in this that is so good and apropos for us today. I love uh, chapter 4. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long long suffering and doctrine. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. If they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. You know, you learned a lot here today, and you're going to learn a lot in the week. How are people going to know? What are you supposed to do with this? Are you going to take it home to your churches and beat somebody over the head with it? Is that going to be effective? No. I'm glad I'm hearing some no's. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and God gives the answer for that as well. And so, um, I want to go there right now. John 13. I wish we had more time. My last text. I think I've gone a little long, and I ask your forgiveness. John 13, we're going to go in in verse 34. Christ is talking to his disciples, and he says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, and that ye also love one another. Why? Why does God give this? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's how they know. And so I give a challenge to you. You've learned a lot, but the world is never going to know and recognize unless you have the love of Christ and you have it for each other. We've got to figure this out. And when we figure this out, people will look at us and they will say, I want what they've got. We have so much. We have so much. We should not be deceived. The spirit of prophecy gives us all the guidance we need. And if I pray that it's been clear today that you can see the parallels between the emergent church and what we've been through with the experience of Kellogg. We must be overcomers. We must overcome. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your sure word of prophecy. And I thank you for the gift of the spirit of prophecy so that we can see clearly in these last days. The Bible says if it were possible, even the very elect should be deceived. Lord, I pray that we will not be deceived, Lord, and that we will be your elect. Lord, I tremble for our church, and I tremble for the world at large being confronted with this incredible deception. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace that we may have your love and that we may share the truth with those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.